Transferring wealth successfully starts with asking yourself questions that will give your family a better life now and for generations to come. In this podcast, financial professionals John and Michael from Copper Beach Financial Group guide you through eye-opening questions to help you discover the truth about your wealth. Now, on to the show. Hello and welcome to The Truth About Wealth with John and Michael Paris of Copper Beach Financial Group. Today's podcast is part two of a series that they're doing, Seven Asset Protection Risks Facing High Net Worth Families and How Trusts Can Assist in Avoiding Them. Good afternoon, gentlemen. How are you? Hey, Eric. Good afternoon. How are you doing? Good afternoon, Eric. Doing well. Doing well. Now, we went through, I believe, the first four risks, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yes, we did. Yes. Yeah. Michael, could you give us just a quick overview of what those risks were? Not not fully defined, but just to touch on those so people can get an idea of what we covered in the last podcast. And if they're just joining us, they can go back and listen to that other one. Sure. Well, the, the first one involved uh, potential lawsuits that may face high net worth individuals and families. Mm-hmm. The second risk is lack of adequate insurance protection really associated with those lawsuits. Third one was divorce, uh, marital separation, and inheritance, mm-hmm. and how trusts can help protect families leaving assets to children and who, who may end a marriage somewhere down the road, and how the trust can help protect those assets. And the fourth one was substance abuse. Yeah, and that was a that was a tough one because again, we we touched on a lot of emotional issues there. Yeah, that's a tough one. You mm-hmm. know, families with a lot of times they're embarrassed or they they just think there's a lot of shame involved, and we really established that you guys are non-judgmental, things happen in families, and the best way to deal with things is just head on and focus on what can solve the problem instead of saying, oh man, we don't want to talk to anybody about this. Sure. And and of course, with a lot of these strategies that we're going to talk about, you can utilize these trusts to help protect the family should something Absolutely. like that arise somewhere down the road. So you have a good protective format in place uh, should that ever occur. We obviously hope it doesn't. But as you said, sometimes that does pop up and you can kind of build these structures to really protect against that. Yeah, absolutely. All right, we got the last three to go. We've done the first four. What is risk number five? Risk number five. Well, this is, uh, pick these two. The, the last one we talked, substance abuse is a very emotional topic. This one might be fairly emotional as well. So we're going to talk about premature death and spousal remarriage. So mm-hmm. this is something everyone really likes to think about is yeah. them passing away and their spouse finding somebody else. <laughs> so yeah. we're yeah. going to talk a little bit about that. And Unfortunately, while a lot of us like to think that we're the only ones in our spouse's lives, the data really doesn't quite agree with that. And there's a study that we like to quote with families. It's a little bit older now. I think it came out in the mid-90s, but it was a study that surveyed uh, widows and widowers and how they found romantic relationships after the passing of their first spouse. And I, I always find these statistics pretty startling. So they found that by 25 months after the death of a spouse, 61% of men and 19% of women were either remarried or involved in some sort of new romantic relationship. So when we talk about this event occurring, it can actually occur should there be a premature passing. And we really talk a lot about this uh, with younger individuals. Yeah, Eric, a few years back, I attended a presentation in New York by an attorney funny thing. And he was talking about the second and third marriages of families. And most of the audience uh, were professionals. And he said, 
uh, for all the men in this audience who think that their wives are not going to find someone they're going to love more than, than you, you're sadly mistaken. <laughs> and he really made everyone laugh. But the facts supported that. And, and that's where Michael's point is that the odds are a spouse meeting someone down the road very quickly is commonplace. Mm-hmm. So when we start talking about asset protection from the first marriage into the second, hopefully not the third, these trusts become a very interesting part of the equation. So that's what we're going to be talking about in this particular one. Yeah. And the thing is, is that my wife and I have talked about it. If I were to pass away, I would hope that she would find love with someone else. I want her to be happy and I want her to you know, have companionship. I, I know I'm not the end all be all. <laughs> I got to be honest, but I hope that happens. But yeah. one of the things that I don't think about, and most people don't think about is great. She can find love and companionship and, and remarry, but the things that you guys established together, like your entire life and your finances and, and inheritances for the kids and things, those can be drastically affected by a new marriage. Absolutely. that's And that's really uh, what we wanted to talk about with this particular risk. And I often really use myself as an example. So I'm married. I have a two-year-old daughter. I'm 36. My wife is going to be 33 in a couple months. And should something happen to me tomorrow, I would certainly want the assets that I have to be used by my wife and and obviously for the children that we have uh, together. With my wife being 33, there's, again, according to these statistics, a fairly reasonable opportunity for her to find somebody else. And Mm -hmm. she's young enough where she may find somebody else and maybe she has children from that marriage as well. So there's uh, now we have a blended family type of situation. And so what we're going to talk about with trusts is if I in my estate plan, my personal estate plan, if I have something that is commonly referred to as an I love you will. So that's really where one spouse says in their will, I leave all of my assets to my spouse Mm -hmm. outright and free of trust. It's just called an I love you will because it's a very simple type of, of will design. If I do that in my will and I leave everything to my spouse, she has now full control over those assets. They're in her name. So if she were to remarry somewhere down the road, she can certainly keep those assets in her name, keep them separate. But as we talked about on our last podcast in talking about divorce and commingling of assets prior to a divorce, if she were to commingle those assets that I leave her, now it should something happen to her if she were to pass away, those assets are now, let's say, 50-50 owned by her second spouse and not going directly to my children or being used for my children. So that's really the issue that we're talking about here and where, why trust can come into play is if I instead left my assets into trust for her benefit and for the benefit of my children, well, now my wife, should I pass away, she has the ability to use those assets. But if she were to remarry, they're protected in that trust format where if she were to then pass away, they would be left for my children and not any children from a subsequent marriage. Gotcha. And I'm assuming that that can't be 100% handled in a prenuptial then. Not typically. It's typically uh, really just to involve what is in your will. Now, another wrinkle that can come in into that scenario is there's something called elective share laws in a lot of states. Not every state has them. A lot of states in, in the East Coast, like New Jersey, where we are, they have an elective share law. And what that basically is designed to do is to prevent one spouse from disinheriting another spouse. So a lot of these laws actually go way back into 
even going all the way back to England and Renaissance times and medieval times of these concept of dowry, which a lot of people may be familiar with. These laws, believe it or not, are kind of evolved from those laws. Mm. And again, what that's designed to do is to prevent one spouse from disinheriting another spouse. So let's say in my example, if my wife, if I've passed away, my wife has in her will that all the assets that I have left her go to her children and my children from the first marriage. Well, under some of these elective share laws, her spouse could potentially, depending on on the law, and they're different in every state, so you really have to talk with a qualified attorney in your state about what those laws may or may not be, but there is the potential for that spouse to say, okay, I'm going to elect to take some of those assets, even though I've been disinherited, I want, according to these laws, to get my hands on those assets. So that's really where sometimes, again, getting back to your question on a prenuptial, the prenuptial agreement may not cover that type of scenario, gotcha. wow. potentially. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it's very state-specific. Okay, so let me give you my scenario, and you can kind of answer my question here, because I'm, I'm a little confused. My wife and I own two homes. We have two properties. We have a checking account. We have a couple different savings accounts, but we're, we're on everything together. And so my question is, how could I possibly create a trust to make sure that my, quote, I'm using air quotes, my assets are protected for my children in the future when my wife and I both own everything equally? That's a great question, Eric. And that's really where the complexity starts to happen as we speak with families, because assets are owned differently. And I'll give you an example. You just brought up homes. Most of the clients who come across have assets joint titled, and they go by title, not through your will. So whoever is the other owner of that asset, they get it automatically. It bypasses that document. So it changes the dynamics of what happens to that particular asset. And then there's life insurance, where it's a beneficiary designation. It also bypasses the will. Mm -hmm. There's IRAs. There's other assets that don't go directly through a will, which miss the opportunity to be protected. They have a different focus on the family wealth, and it goes in a different place. Again, it goes by a beneficiary or by title. So the conversations we have with families on these assets, they become lengthy because some clients say, I want those assets to go over here and I want those assets to go over there and, or I don't want them to all go through my will. So it becomes a very, very dynamic conversation. So it's critical that families, when they look at and try to address this, look at this dynamic, they really have to be clear on what they own, how it gets distributed, and how it gets titled and where it happens to end up. That's a very, very good question. Yeah, and to add to that too, you have some states in the country that are what's called community property states mm -hmm. where assets that are acquired during the marriage are presumptively owned 50-50 regardless of how they're titled. So you can get some really unique circumstances depending on where you live. Again, that's why it's very, very state-specific and it does get very complex, which is to my father's point, it becomes really important to sort of look at all of these from start to finish, look at the assets that you have, how they're titled, if something were to happen to one spouse, how would those assets flow? Because that's a great point that we see a lot of wills that say one thing, but the assets, because of how they're titled, may go in a different direction, just based on how they're titled and how the laws control those assets. So it's a pretty dynamic exercise. Yeah, the other piece of the assets, which I forgot to bring up, are assets that are not necessarily assets that are real estate, homes, or business assets. They could be jewelry. It could be artwork. Mm -hmm. It could be things of value that might not be in the will. So a lot of our clients create another document, a list of items that they want to specifically go to a family member or another party in their family. So it's very complex and it should be looked at very carefully by these families as they, as they look at where these assets are going 
typically they want to protect them. And sometimes when they're out of that protected shell, they're exposed to creditors. So you can, obviously you said that you can do that in a will. It's a separate document. Can you do that in a trust as well? Yes, mm-hmm. you can you can do that in, in trust as well. Got yep. it. Okay. I, I just asked that because you brought up a good point. I have a, a pocket watch that my great-great-grandfather passed to my grandfather. Yeah, that's a good point. And that's that yeah. came to me, and now that goes to the firstborn grandson, which I have one. So it'll go to him when he isn't going to eat it <laughs> at this age. <laughs> exactly. He just eat it. So, yeah. Okay, great. That's that's great information. Do we have anything else to cover in the, in the premature death remarriage scenario? No, I think we've been we've been morbid enough. Let's move to number six. <laughs> All right, number six. <laughs> so, so number six is really we call incorrect trust planning, and this is something that comes up quite frequently when we talk with families and we're reviewing their estate plan and we're we're talking about asset protection with them and how trust may be utilized. And often the families will say, "Well, I have a trust," or when I drafted my estate documents with my attorney ten years ago. We had a trust in, that you drafted, and so I think we're all set on asset protection. Then we say, okay, well, that's great. What kind of trust is it? And oftentimes they say, well, it's called a, something like a family trust or a living trust. Those are common terms for trusts that are what we call revocable trusts. Revocable meaning they can be changed at any point in time. And typically when assets are owned by those revocable trusts in most states, almost, almost every state that I'm aware of, those types of trusts provide very little to almost no asset protection whatsoever because oh. they're really what are considered alter egos of the person themselves. So that is a type of asset protection risk that a lot of our families maybe aren't thinking about or think that they have it in place when they really don't. Wow. Happens all the time. Yep. When we're going through those, if asset protection becomes a concern for the family, oftentimes we'll look at what are called irrevocable trusts. And typically irrevocable trusts are ones that cannot be changed or have very limited ability to change them once they're in force. And because they can't be changed, assets that are then transferred to those trusts typically have much better asset protection features than revocable trusts. Gotcha. Does that go back to what we were talking about on the last podcast with potential lawsuits? Is a revocable trust more vulnerable to lawsuits than an irrevocable trust? Correct. Right. That's the issue. Yeah. yeah. And again, it it is very state specific. So trust law is based on each individual state. Some states may have laws that are more protective than others. But generally speaking, you're correct, Eric, assets that are owned in a revocable trust, should there be a lawsuit or some other type of creditor exposure, those trusts aren't going to provide much asset protection, if any. So if yeah, some- the irrevocable trust, it's an interesting conversation when you talk to families about these two types of trusts. The irrevocable trust is an interesting balance in a conversation because if you understand what Michael just pointed out, once you put assets in the trust, you can't get them out or the trust can't be changed. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the f- families we, we speak with are concerned if they put too much in this trust, what if they need it somewhere down the road? Yeah. What if it's too much in the trust? So there's a balance in the conversation. What assets do we put in the trust and how much should go in there? And so there's a modeling, there's a cash flow analysis, there's a projection of value. All those very complex calculations have to be done before clients make that final decision to use these type of trusts. But for asset protection purposes, they're the only trusts that work that well. How easy is it to go from a revocable trust to an irrevocable trust when you have a client come in that they've worked with somebody else in the past and they made the wrong decision or they were advised to do a revocable trust and it's just not the best thing for them? 
How do you switch it to an irrevocable? Well, first off, revocable trusts are good estate planning tools. They have their place. They're very good for avoiding probate and uh, providing privacy to an estate administration. So they certainly have their role, but from an asset protection standpoint, they're maybe not as good. To answer your question, Eric, it's really more of creating a new irrevocable trust, and then it becomes really fairly easy to, to assign those and retitle those assets from one trust to another. It's pretty common. Got it. Yeah, one of the questions we ask families all the time is your estate documents public or private? And that's what Michael's point is, mm. is a regular will is a public document. For example, Eric, you wrote a will and left everything to your wife. That's a public document. I could go down to the courthouse and read what you left your wife. Wow. If it pours over to this trust as a strategy or things are owned in a revocable trust, they're out of that public view and it's in a private structure. So that's a really interesting conversation to have. Most clients don't know that their wills are public documents. You would think that would be a very private thing, right? And it's no, not. certainly. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Yep. All right, we have one more risk to go unless there's anything else that we need to cover in the trust planning arena. No, I think that was good, although we'll probably still touch on trusts for number seven, but please continue. All right, so risk number seven, what are we looking at? We're looking at, in this case, a lack of financial literacy skills and values in future generations. Mm. And this is, a again, another reason why trust can become very important tools for a family's uh, wealth planning. But we often have a lot of conversations with our families around how well-educated or financially literate their children may be who stand to inherit, for a lot of our families, a significant sum of money and assets that are very complex, have a lot of different moving parts, and how well uh, situated are they to be able to manage those? And so that's really an asset protection risk that, again, families may not be thinking of. And especially if we see an estate document that either has a trust that maybe pours assets out at a certain age to the children or maybe doesn't incorporate a trust at all, those family members, future generations, are now going to inherit significant assets. And unless they're, let's say, trained on how those mm -hmm. assets are run, how they work, could be a family business, it could be a piece of real estate, it could be a securities portfolio, but unless they really understand how those assets work, the family's jeopardizing those assets to mismanagement. All great intentions, but sometimes they're subjected to mismanagement of those assets. Yeah, a lot of that's got to come with maturity. I mean, depending on when everything switches over and, and all that, it could be when somebody's 20, could be 30, could be when they're 50 or 60. Yes. Yeah, that's that's a great point. And I think we'll probably have a podcast about that when we talk about trust designs and how we can design these trusts to be more asset protective in nature. And, and age is often many times an arbitrary number. We've known children in their well, children, adults in their 20s that are very well prepared to mm -hmm. handle these assets that they may inherit. And on the other side, you have a, a 40 or 50 year old who may not be. It, it really is customized for the family and depends on the family's dynamics and circumstances and what they have going on. Yeah, we're working with a family now that has a dad who runs a very successful company. He's the rainmaker. He's the one that makes the engine go. He's got a great sales team, a support team that really do a good job supporting his efforts. He travels the world with his business. And one of the challenges we have, the main player inside the company other than himself is his son who's 25 years old. And when I asked him a question, if something happened to you tomorrow, Mr. Client, who takes over the business? He said, well, my son's in a good position. He's learning. He's doing a pretty good job. 
But I want to think about that for a second. I'm going to take this very large asset, give it to a 25-year-old young man who's probably very bright, and he is, by the way. Mm -hmm. uh, but what expertise or what experience does he have to now take over the business that dad created and not have any protection around that? What I mean by that is we get into building management teams in these companies, developing strategies where instead of the company stock going out to the sun, it goes to a trust for the benefit of sun. Uh, so there's a lot of different areas where there's a lot of risk involved in very large assets and a lot of detail work has to be done in that regard. Yeah. This has got to be a tough conversation to have with a family, I would assume, because nobody wants to hear that their kids aren't well, oh, exactly. aren't ready yeah. for this or aren't uh, smart enough for it or aren't sophisticated enough or mature enough, whatever that is. Nobody wants to hear that about their kids. How do you guys have this conversation? But believe it or not, I think, Dad, you may, you can agree or disagree. I think many of the families that we work with are pretty open with that. I think they have a good idea of oh, absolutely. which which of their family members may be better able to handle that, these assets versus others. We've had quite a few conversations with some families about that. So I think in many ways, the family is really dictating to us sort of how that works. We're just bringing the subject up. But your question's well taken, Eric. It's not sometimes the easiest conversation for families to think about, but it's one of the things that they hire us to sort of be the catalyst for. Yeah, to go back to this case I was just referencing, Eric, to finish the conversation, where's the real risk in that transaction? Well, the son might not be able to run the business because now he's got all that responsibility. But how about the spouse? Mm -hmm. What's the risk of losing that company because his son can't run it? So it hits a lot of folks inside the family, particularly in this case, the spouse was going to be at risk of taking this very large asset and potentially having a fire sale if it's not run properly. And now the whole dynamics of the family changes. So it gets critical. And to elaborate on your question from a little earlier, Eric, we do family meetings with all of our families. That's part of our process. Mm -hmm. And that really becomes a really great opportunity to sort of broach these subjects and get the generations talking to each other because we've had conversations with many, let's say second or third generation family members who are really equally concerned about their own ability to manage the wealth. They're not sure where these assets are, how they, how they're run and they want to learn. And so the family meeting becomes a really great opportunity to, to sort of cross that bridge and sort of bring everybody together and make sure that, that education takes place so that should something happen, the kids are already well positioned to be able to manage the, those assets as best they can. Yeah, we had another case in Phoenix we're working on where we had a family meeting to Michael's point with the two children and the parents, a very successful doctor in Phoenix. And his youngest son said to his mother, mom, you give me $1,000 a month every month, which is great. You help me in a great way. But you're really not teaching me about money. I mean, I look at all the real estate that you folks get involved with. I want to learn more about the real estate, how you get involved with it, how do you buy it, how do you manage it. I need to get more involved in that. So the parents looked at Michael and I and said, <laughs> okay, that's a great question. So yeah. I turned around to the parents and said, you know, that, that condo you have over here, do you really need that? And they said, no, we really don't. Why don't we take that condo and put it in the trust and let the boys run the, run the real estate inside the trust and teach them how to run it, let them collect rent, let them run the property, manage the property. And the, and the family thought it was a great idea. 
And Michael's now over the last couple of weeks working with the attorney to transfer that asset to the trust and the boys are going to run it. And the conversation, they were so excited after that, that this is going to work out great. Now, what, what just happened? We had generation one and two come together on a joint effort to teach generation two how to manage the responsibility, i.e. this piece of real estate. Very neat conversation. Everybody left that meeting very excited, which is a wonderful conversation. Yeah, it's beautiful. I mean, that goes back to something you guys have said before. It makes me very, very happy to hear that you guys work on family mission statements. And I think that that falls oh, yeah. right Big under, part. right? That, I mean, that falls under that family mission statement. They want Absolutely. them to succeed. Whatever that statement says, we know that family wants multiple generations from now to succeed. What a great opportunity for those guys. And that's a proud moment for a parent when your son says something that wise. You know what? I need to learn more about what you guys do. I need to learn more about the, the real estate side because I need to learn more about how this entire world works. I would love it if my son would say that more often to me. <laughs> That'd be great. And the close of that, that session was kind of funny. I took the older son aside. I said, so what'd you think about the meeting? And he said, he calls me Uncle John. He said, Uncle John, that was a great meeting. And I said, and you're going to work very well with Michael in the future. And he looked at me with a funny face. He smiled. He goes, you're right, because you're my dad's advisor, Michael's yeah. mine. That's the generational Beauty. piece that we built at Copper Beach, where the younger generations are looking at Michael as their peer or as their mentor versus me, although they look at it as a group. But it's, it's an interesting dynamic when you look at the succession of families and also succession of a practice to help these children understand that someone's going to be there to help them. That's fantastic. Guys, thank you so much. This is a great podcast today. All right. No problem. It was, it was we always a have fun. a lot of fun. You are. Yep. All right. Thank you all for listening today to the Truth About Wealth podcast with John and Michael Paris. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when John and Michael come out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This is important because the topics that they're covering, these spark questions in people's minds. I'm hoping you're listening to this thing. You know what? There's a lot of information within this small package that I need to figure out for myself and for my family and for the future generations of my family, please reach out to John and Michael. They are more than happy to talk to you, more than happy to meet with you. Obviously, you, you can hear them on here. They're great and they work really well together. Again, it's great for you to share these with your friends and family if you have an opportunity. I'm sure that they could learn a lot as well. Thanks again for listening to today. For everyone at Copper Beach Financial Group, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Truth About Wealth podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Copper Beach Financial Group. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Securities offered through American Portfolio Financial Services Incorporated, a member of FINRA SIPC Investment Advisory and Financial Planning Services offered through American Portfolio Advisors Incorporated, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Copper Beach is an unaffiliated entity of APFS and APA. Any opinions expressed in this forum are not the opinion or view of American Portfolios Financial Services Incorporated APFS or American Portfolios Advisors Incorporated APA and have not been reviewed by the firm for completeness or accuracy. These opinions are subject to change at any time without notice. 
Any comments or postings are provided for informational purposes only and do not constitute an offer or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or other financial instruments. Readers should conduct their own review and exercise judgment prior to investing. This material is for informational purposes only. Neither APFS nor its representatives provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Please consult your own tax, legal, or accounting professional before making any decisions.